And I would argue we're already living in a dystopia. We've got a tiny number of Mark Zuckerbergs and Elon Musks. Where has socialism ever successfully dispersed power? It has not. If Jeremy Corbyn becomes Prime Minister, what would you like him to do straight away? There would be some room for private ownership. Um, I don't think the state's over for it, no. <laughs> and I would say capitalism's responsible for this huge elevation. Would you agree with that? Oh yeah, absolutely. If you want money, you have to have a central bank. No, you don't. Hello and welcome to another episode of Room for Thought. Now, you may have noticed in recent years, throughout the Western world, an extraordinary phenomenon has starting to happen. I'm not talking about the outbreak of populism. I'm talking about something that I think may be even more politically significant. This is the rise of what you might call the new left. Old ideas, or perhaps new ideas, that we find on the radical left in Britain, Europe and America, are making a strong comeback. In America, we see the rise of Bernie Sanders and AOC. Over here, Jeremy Corbyn came within 4,000 votes of becoming Prime Minister at the last election. Now, today I want to talk to one of the leading lights behind many of the new ideas on the new left. Uh, Grace Blakely, thank you very much for coming in. Thank you for having me. Now, you've written a book. I have. It is right here. <laughs> thank you. Tell us a little bit about it yeah, and what's so, the basic hypothesis? Uh, absolutely. So it's called Stolen, How to Save the World from Financialization, available in all good bookstores. Um, and it will be out on the 10th of September. Uh, and the, the central premise of the book is that um, we've been living, effectively, as many people will know, since the financial crisis during a period of, of relative economic stagnation that's manifested itself in a number of different ways, whether that's... Uh, um, a decade of wage stagnation, uh, falling productivity, falling living standards, rising poverty, etc. Uh, and economists are kind of at a, a bit of a loss to explain what's going on there. Um, and so the central argument of, of the book is that what happened in 2008 was the collapse of an entire economic model, which I call finance-led growth, uh, that was kind of initiated in the 1980s um, and grew and grew and grew, obviously becoming... Um, I suppose, well, you had ever higher levels of debt, you had the rising size of the finance sector, you had huge amounts of economic and financial integration into the global economy. Um, and that model ultimately collapsed uh, under the weight of its own contradictions mm -hmm. in 2008. Uh, and the period that we've been in since then, that kind of 10 years since the crisis, is that quite furtive moment between the death of the old and the birth of something new. And this, for me, is why we've been experiencing, as you, as you mentioned, the kind of the rise of the new left alongside all sorts of other um, political upheavals. It's essentially because people are looking around for the next model, for the next system, according to which you know, the economy is going to work, because the old one is now dead. I mean, I certainly agree with you that excess creation of money and excess creation of credit has had some pretty bad symptoms. I mean, you talk about the productivity puzzle. Mm -hmm. I've, I've yet to meet uh, a mainstream free market economist who's got a good explanation for, for the productivity puzzle. Um, but uh, and, you know, I, I would also agree that excess creation of, of credit has had all sorts of secondary consequences. It, it, I think it's one of the reasons why as a country we import more than we export. Mm -hmm. It's one of the reasons why we overconsume. consume you know, Cheap credit means people can, can, can splurge. But um, to talk, talk me through, what, what do you think some of the other consequences are? Do you, do you think inequality is a consequence of this? Uh, yes, absolutely. I mean, the way that I understand this process of, of what I call financialization, uh, mm -hmm. which is the process according to which this model of finance-led growth develops, mm -hmm. is that it's not just about kind of rising banks, um, you know, 
the creation of excess credit, as you say. It's actually how the logic of finance mm-hmm. comes to impose itself upon all areas of economic activity. Right. Um, so the way that the book works is that I, I start by looking at the emergence of this model. Mm-hmm. So I look at the crisis of the 1970s, um, how that period of kind of conflict and confrontation paved the way for the emergence of new ideas. And you did have that on the right and the left at the mm-hmm. time. Obviously, the right, in the end, won out. Um, but I would argue that that should be seen as a battle rather mm-hmm. than, you know, necessarily a kind of uh, a victory of ideas. It was mm-hmm. very much a victory of kind of um, uh, in terms of politics. And so what emerged from that system was obviously this, uh, this logic of finance-led growth. And that impacted um, every area of the economy, essentially. If you take Keynes's demand function, mm-hmm. which is consumption by households, investment by businesses, government mm-hmm. spending mm-hmm. and net exports, financialization has impacted all of those things. Mm-hmm. So firstly, you've had the financialization of corporations, Mm-hmm. And this has manifested itself in... So they, they borrow huge amounts of money and take over other companies and operate so-called leveraged growth. Well, yes, that's part of it, definitely. So you definitely had in, in the 1980s the rise of the kind of corporate mm-hmm. raider and the activist investor mm-hmm. who would mm-hmm. load up on cheap debt, go in and, and buy up a load of equities in a company mm-hmm. and then use that, that power to disgorge um, lots of money that could go to creditors and shareholders. Mm-hmm. But that's really part of a much broader logic, which is mm-hmm. this idea of, of shareholder value maximization. Mm-hmm. So rather than um, kind of seeing their role as maybe specialising in the production of a particular good or service, businesses today are much more um, focused on their standing in the city, in Wall Street, mm-hmm. their share price, um, mm-hmm. how, mu- how much they're, they're dishing out to shareholders. Mm-hmm. Um, and as a result, you've seen a fall in productive investment, mm-hmm. Uh, a fall in wage growth mm-hmm. and a significant increase in dividends payouts, in mergers and acquisitions mm-hmm. activity, mm-hmm. a very concentrated form of capitalism at the mm-hmm. moment as a result of a huge amount of mergers but and acquisitions. What, one of your central arguments is that cheap credit yeah. has acted in the interests of certain vested interests and that cheap credit has allowed big corporate entities, big banks to, to you know, accumulate wealth rather easily with yeah. a sort of one-way bet. Surely the biggest vested interest is is the state. The British state likes cheap credit. And one of the reasons why so-called financialization, this proliferation of easy money, is because actually governments like to overspend. They like to borrow. Well, I would agree that the state is a vested interest. I would not say uh, that that has resulted in an overborrowing. What I actually think is that... So you if don't you think look the state's at- overborrowed? Um, I don't think the state's overborrowed. No, not considering the kind of crisis into which we were plunged in 2008. If you look at borrowing prior to the crisis, 40% of GDP, right? And the ideology that was um, kind of came alongside the rise of finance-led growth in the UK impacted the state as well. Mm -hmm. And actually what we saw was that rather than borrowing to spend, as, you know, states traditionally have, uh, they were increasingly outsourcing that spending, not just outsourcing the services, mm-hmm. but outsourcing the actual spending mm-hmm. to private interests. So you had the rise of private financing initiatives, yeah. which actually cost the government more in terms of borrowing than it would have if they you know, just borrowed the money themselves in capital markets. Isn't this a symbiotic relationship between big banks and big government? Both of them like to have an arrangement where basically the government can get money, either through PFI or, or, or the bond market, to spend today. And in return for that, it sort of writes out a whole bunch of IOUs, either a, a, a PFI contract with all sorts of uh, punitive clauses in it, or, or bonds, a guaranteed slice of future tax revenue. Isn't the problem a symbiotic relationship between big government and big banks rather than the free market? The problem is a symbiotic relationship between big government and big banks. And the, but that has an integral relationship to mm-hmm. how the free market ends up emerging yeah. and how it works. You know, ultimately, the way capitalism functions today is reliant upon the state. 
Uh, you could not yeah. have allegedly free markets without the state willing to enforce certain yeah. kinds of property, um, certain kinds of market relations without regulation, without, you know, what control over borders. What free market capitalism, you might say. Well, yeah. I mean, exactly. You know, this is, it is an interesting argument. I mean, I would, I would say that the, the utopian ideal of free market capitalism is in fact an impossibility, right? Um, and, and that's because capitalism has an inherent tendency towards concentration and towards what you might call kind of corruption and, and vested interests, etc. Exactly, because you get an ever smaller number of people controlling an ever increasing amount of stuff. Those people naturally end up having links with the state and they therefore come to kind of subvert mm. democracy mm. and use the state in order to, to further their interests. Now, for me, the best way to... You know, this isn't an inherent part of the way the state has to function. For me, what is the most important thing about actually moving towards a, a socialist system, aside from obviously, you know, making sure that we have different models of ownership so that that tiny number of people doesn't own all the stuff, is actually introducing the logic of political democracy into the way that the economy works. But would socialism disperse power? I would say it would, yes. How you would, would it do further that? and deepen political democracy to make sure that the people who, who run the state, the people who run, you know, the quangos, all, all kind of areas of, of, of state activity and of government mm -hmm. activity are directly accountable to people, to the voters, mm -hmm. as well as to various different stakeholders and are accountable in terms of how they, you know, um, manage their relationships with the private sector, mm -hmm. in terms of their environmental impact, mm -hmm. in terms of all sorts of outcomes, not just, you know, whether or not they've increased the size of the economy, but how equal we are, etc. And you would also apply the, that logic of kind of very strong, direct accountability to how the economy works. So you believe that capitalism is inherently, ends up, as Piketty argues in his book, concentrates economic power, you get cronyism and a concentration of political power, you think socialism would disperse power? I, I do think that, that that first point of um, of what you just said is true. It actually dates back to, to Lenin over 100 years ago. He talked about monopoly capitalism. Um, and before How did that work out? Well, I mean, his, his theory, of course, you know, putting aside any kind of any political um, <laughs> results that came out from that, his theory was that as capitalism develops, there is a tendency for a smaller number of people to control more of the stuff. And that as a result, you get stronger relationships between the small number of people who own those companies and the finance sector, because the banks are very involved in providing credit for the mergers and acquisitions that underlie that, for the kind of capital investment that underlies that, um, and that therefore you end up with this kind of financialized model. Uh, and in many ways, they were a bit early with that, because yeah. of course there were indications of that in the run-up to the Wall Street crash. But really today, we're at the peak of kind of a financial I, capitalism. I, I definitely agree with you that I think there's a real problem with with, I'm not going to label it, the economic system we have today. Yeah. I, I think it does what you call financialization. Uh, the free market Austrian in, economist to me would say, yeah, absolutely, mm. there's, a, there's a fundamentally rotten system here. But I just, I just want to tease this out a little bit. I mean, when you look at financialization, surely it's an absence of the free market. Take, for example, interest rates. Mm. Central bank has set interest rates. This is the price of credit being set by a state institution. That's not the free market. QE is a subsidy, a bailout, ultimately paid by the rest of us, uh, to, to big banks. That's not the free market. Surely it's, it's a sort of crony corporatism that's the root cause of the problem. Well, I would agree with you, but, but again, I don't think it's possible to have... We like common have, ground on this show. I don't think it's possible to have free market capitalism yeah. without that system eventually emerging. Okay. Um, because, you know, as soon as you get private ownership, um, you know, supported by the state with the aim of profit, that 
system has an inherent tendency towards concentration. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the most important thing about the, the two examples you just gave, which are interest rates and quantitative easing, is actually the nature of money. Now, this is the probably a, a, the most fascinating thing about modern, modern capitalism is, is how money works. And essentially, we've moved toward, away from a system of, of commodity money, which was also backed up by the state and supported by tax revenues, towards a system of central bank and credit money. And essentially, the money that we have in, you know, in our pockets is, is a form of IOU backed up by the power of the state. Yeah. The state issues money without anything to kind of go off. Um, and then the strength of that money, the value of that money, is based on our trust in the state it's to be able to pay that back. It's a Sanjay Javid pound, in effect. It's, well, yeah. yes, exactly. You know, we, we trust the fact that we have a strong state which has the capacity to raise taxes, yeah. and therefore the English pound is relatively strong. At the moment, we're seeing strength in that, the strength of that pound mm. decline somewhat, perhaps because international investors don't think that over the long run, you know, that state will remain as strong. But ultimately, it is uh, the trust of, of people um, that underlies the value of, of our, our currency. Um, and that is something, is another indication that you couldn't have capitalism without the state. I'm really fascinated. In your book, when do you argue that this corruption of the system, this financialization began? Is the 1980s, you said? I think the 1980s was the beginning of a new, entirely new institutional apparatus. Yeah. But I think it starts almost immediately after. Um, the Second World War, when you have a completely different mm -hmm. form of political economy, the kind mm -hmm. of Keynesian or, or post-war consensus, where you had effectively a kind of um, tripartite relationship between unions, businesses and the state. When the state begins to intervene in the economy. Well, the state intervenes much more. I mean, obviously, the, the intervention starts earlier when you yeah. have the Second World War. Um, but L Linking that point with the point about the change of the nature of money, surely the really big, significant and often overlooked change of the nature of money was 1971. Yes. End of Bretton Woods. Now, this is taught as being you know, Nixon needing to finance the Vietnam War. Actually, there's a real significance here. That's the moment when the dollar, and by extension all the uh, other countries' currencies that were pegged to it, mm -hmm. the dollar is decoupled from the value of gold. Yeah. That's when you have a combination of fiat money, unrestrained fractional reserve banking, and in the 1970s, 1980s, 1990s, and today, we're dealing with the consequences of that. You can't have paper promises issued by banks and an unrestrained appetite to spend money by government. It, 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 well, it doesn't work. So, 1971 was significant for two reasons. Firstly, obviously, you did have the collapse of Bretton Woods, so you're right, we moved to, towards a, a system of entirely fiat money where currency is issued based on a kind of promise to pay. Followed by chronic inflation. Uh, well, yes, okay, followed by... Um, so, in the UK, you obviously have that, and you have it alongside it. Uh, something called competition and credit control, which is introduced by the Bank of England. And that removes entirely, or not entirely, but to a great extent, um, quantitative restrictions on the ability of private banks to create money. Yeah. So you have a combination of a move towards fiat money and the removal of credit control. And, and, and it's really important at this point, <coughs> because once you've got 100% fiat currency and banks, private banks can create money at will, suddenly you're, you've got to impose credit controls, because the consequence is that... Guess exactly. What and I, I kind of outline in the book why this change is so significant, because yeah. neoclassical economists would say, uh, you know, it, this doesn't really matter. There was this idea of, okay. well, yes, they would say this idea of monetarism, right? So uh, it doesn't, you, you shouldn't have quantitative restrictions yeah. on the capacity of, of private, um, private banks to lend. What you need to do is use the interest rate yes. to control lending. And if you make credit expensive enough, then people won't use it to invest in know, these ways. I used to have arguments with mm. Tory MPs who would say they believe in the free market, and then in the next sentence say they believe in monetarism. And I'd say, hang on, 
If you believe in the free market, how can you believe in the state controlling? Well, the they would argue that they were trying to set the interest rate, which will be the price of money, at a level commensurate but, with supply and demand. But, but they thought they'd it, found a way to Im do that. Imagine if those same politicians were to say, we're going to control the price of bread to make sure there's enough bread in London. I mean, you know, we're going to control rents. People on the centre-right ought to know that that doesn't fit with a free market philosophy. Yet somehow when it comes to money and banking, Tory MPs and thinkers just abandon any pretense in believing in the free market. And they, they, they suddenly, they're suddenly in favour of central bankers deciding things. Well, I mean, it's a, it's a similar sort of thing of, um, of how uh, many on the right view unions, for example. So, you know, there's supposed to be a kind of uh, inherent... Uh, bias towards people being able to, you know, to be free to kind of undertake Civic the things society. they want. Exactly, you know, uh, come together in, in communities and in unless workers, they demand higher wages. Unless they're, and exactly, unless they're unions, because unions are allegedly interfering with the price mechanism. Mm -hmm. it, there is this kind of weird, I suppose, almost mystical idea of what the price mechanism is in neoclassical economics. There is this idea, it's almost platonic, right? Mm -hmm. There is a, an ideal price that is somewhere out there in the world that sometimes what happens in the real world means that mm -hmm. we don't quite meet that price. Mm -hmm. So whether it's unions getting in the way or whether it's, you know, central bankers setting the wrong interest rates, which would give you the kind of, you know, the ultimate price of money. Um, and so they think, right, that's the point at which the state is able to intervene yeah. in order to, you know, get us to that true price. Mm -hmm. but of course, you know, this is, it's ridiculous because a lot of these things, in most markets, and particularly in labour markets and money markets, the price is not an objective thing. It is representative of a social relation, and it has to do with power, right? So when it comes to labour markets, you know, the price of wage labour is determined by structural factors in the rest of the economy, whether that's, you know, the size of the labour market, um, the, the number of corporations, how monopolistic they are, um, as well as the relative power of those two groups in society, the relative class power of those two groups. When it comes to money markets, what determines, you know, the interest rate is obviously, you know, the power of the central bank relative to other central banks. I would say it's um, a bunch of cronies and flunkies who've worked for big corporate banks who get appointed to the central bank to rig the market in. Exactly. And in doing so, they then you often give favours to the private banks whose power also is, is what determines the interest rate. It's a symbiotic relationship, it's a parasitic relationship. Well, I mean, yeah, that is, that is one way of looking at it. I think... The private banking system as well, you know, there's, it's not just the central banks that are, that are setting interest rates. It's also these private banks that are not passing on the, the, the rate that they're giving mm -hmm. to consumers. Often consumers with certain forms of unsecured debt are paying many, many multiples of uh, the interest rate that's set by central banks. That's where the bonuses come from. Well, <laughs> exactly. So there's then a question, right, as to what you do about this. On the one mm -hmm. hand, there are some people who say, right, this is not free market enough, I would imagine that would be your view. We need to kind of try and strip out the cronyism, um, try and, you know, make these institutions more uh, competitive, more um, kind of uh, in line with free market principles. What I would say is that there's no such thing, whether in abstraction or in reality, as a free market. Any market is constructed and it, it, it emerges in the context of certain power relations. Mm -hmm. The state is obviously, you know, the most powerful in terms of violence entity in any mm -hmm. society, and therefore has a kind of monopoly almost on being able to set some of these rules. But the way they play out is determined by power relations. I think, so we need to shift power relations. I, I think you're absolutely right to say there's no free market utopia anywhere in the world. Even countries that I admire, Hong Kong, Switzerland, they, they have state intervention. Hong Kong's great because mass uh, state ownership of land. Well, you, you may say that. <laughs> we, well, uh, subject for another day. But... Um, you, you talked about a socialist country, a socialist model in which power would be dispersed. Where has this ever happened? Where has socialism ever successfully dispersed power? 
It has not. Right. And this is, um, this is a, another kind of central argument in my book, is that we have had examples of state socialism, obviously, throughout the years. Whether you look at, you know, very extreme examples of totalitarian and repressive regimes uh, in the USSR. Or, or moderate ones like at, Venezuela. Or whether you look at, I mean, you know, Venezuela is an argue, arguable case. But even the UK in the post-war period, right, mm. was like moving towards an ideal of, of what a socialist state might look like, a state socialist state might look like. You know, you had relatively high levels of state ownership, you had quite strong unions, you had a lot of um, kind of services that were decommodified, that were free at the point of use. Um, but that ended up, uh, you know, basically failing as a result of something in the contradictions of that model. And I would argue it's because we've never had democratic socialism. Ah. We've had consistently all over the world state socialism. What's democratic socialism? How does how how is it going to work this time? So the argument the argument being that um, the only way in which accountability ever works, the only way in which you prevent the emergence of these crony relationships, these vested interests, basically the only way to kind of put a halt on the concentration of power in the hands of a tiny elite is very strong and rigorous mechanisms of democratic accountability, not just in politics but in the economy this, too. This is why I came out in favour of direct democracy, and I, I, as a member of parliament, wrote books about it. I, I completely mm. agree. You need to make people who just decide public policy much more accountable to the public yeah. than they are. But how, how is socialism going to do that? Surely you need liberal democracy. So, on the one hand, you have obviously political democracy, but that doesn't go far enough, because the vast majority of time that people spend in their lives, they spend in their workplaces, working, consuming, you know, doing, the, effectively engaging in economic activity. Mm -hmm. When that is anti-democratic, it translates in the, into the political sphere. When you have two great concentrations of economic power, that translates into crony capitalism. What we need is a system of economic democracy, which combines different forms of ownership, so, for example, consumer ownership of utilities, community ownership of public services, worker ownership of corporations, okay, with direct democracy within firms. Okay, but say, for example, you had you democratised a firm according to the democratic socialism. Would you allow the people who worked for the company to run it? Yes. Why not? There are examples all around the world where you see greater worker participation in the governance of corporations it massively increases productivity. This was in a kind of, uh, in a weird way, the secret to the Japanese success. They started to get workers more involved on the production line and saying, this is what's going on here. We need to shift some of this stuff um, because they were at the grassroots at the ground level, noticing problems as they emerged. Firms are really, and this is another thing- but They didn't give them the, ownership. They may have allowed- They didn't give them ownership. They, they may have allowed local initiative. I mean, any large organisation that allows local initiative, whether productive. it's an army or a big corporation, is more productive. Exactly. But they never gave them ownership. Because, well, of course, because, you know, ultimately you can decentralise, but you want and to maintain the power And in fact, Japan's, Japan's got a huge concentration of economic power. Yes. The Zaibatsu, some would say the Zaibatsu were directly responsible for the militarisation and, and, and... Exactly, and I'm not saying Japanese capitalism is a good thing. I'm just citing that as an example of how decentralisation and the concentration of power... That, Give me an example where this sort of corporatist model has worked. Of where the, the corporatist model... Corporatism. Well. Um, I mean, I don't believe in corporatism. Okay. I think we need, you know, effect effectively, worker engagement and ownership with a stakeholder model of corporate governance. Okay. So if you had a firm that was owned and run by the people that worked in it, alongside representatives, along, yeah, well, quite, alongside representatives of... of the if it's such a good model, why haven't cooperatives, you know, why wasn't Facebook a cooperative? Why wasn't uh, Samsung a cooperative? Again, it comes down to the question of power. 
there are models where, for example, Uber. Uber is a natural um, kind of model for, for being a cooperative. So why doesn't someone because just set one up then? Because and be, the if people, it's such a good model, the defeat Uber. The people who have all the power, the people who control that market, well, the consumers, would, not allow, would not allow that to happen. But surely it's the, the people with mobile phones who have the power. The, a big part of the reason why you obviously don't have much larger worker ownership, why you don't have much more kind of community ownership, why you don't have different models of ownership, mm -hmm. is because of the way that capitalism has developed. It is based on um, private ownership by a small number of people. And obviously, as those people have become more powerful, mm -hmm. they've been able to control more things. Financialization mm -hmm. has helped that. Those mm -hmm. people have been able to take out debt to buy up larger mm -hmm. portions of the, um, of the economy. They've been able to use our savings to buy up big stakes in corporations mm -hmm. and force them to behave in a certain way, which is mm -hmm. to maximize profits. Uh, often regardless of whether that is efficient for you know the economy as a whole for the environment for you know uh, whether or not it meets a whole load of other issues that we would like um like to, to take into account when we were building a, a good society didn't but, east germany try this model of worker-owned cooperatives and worker-led cooperatives there have been examples where worker-owned cooperatives have been much a much more significant part of the economy mm -hmm. right um so for example yugoslavia is, is one of those um, and again, there have always been problems scaling that model up. What was the problem in Yugoslavia? So in Yugoslavia, you had lots of different worker cooperatives in different parts of the country. And one argument as to why the tensions that emerged in the run up to the war uh, got so bad was that you had different levels of productivity in different regions of the country. And there was therefore the need to kind of redistribute from one place to another, which created problems. So democratic yeah. socialism was so successful it created regional inequalities which resulted in war. <laughs> again. This is not, I would argue, the kind of perfect model that we would be yeah. looking at because it would be, you, what you would need to do would be com combine different models of ownership. So mm -hmm. worker-owned corporations, yeah. cooperatives is, is one model. Community-owned enterprises is another model, for example. And you would need some, some state ownership of yeah. things that were natural monopolies, but with rigorous democratic accountability. I mean, I, I certainly think that, you know, any, any functioning free market economy, whether it's the Venetian Republic or the UK today, you, you've got to allow capital and risk to be managed. And in order to do that, the state confers upon companies. In, in the Venetian Republic, they were commender contracts. Today, we call them joint stock companies. You confer, the state confers the privilege of limited liability. And I certainly think it's possible today to say that publicly listed companies, in return for having limited liability, have certain obligations and you can change the nature of those obligations. So I think I think the whole issue of corporate governance reform is ripe for being reviewed. And I think the digital economy necessitates that. But I, I think there's a slight danger if you start to say that the the the, the model has got to be worker owned cooperatives. I, I I think that's where you lose a lot of Again, you know, one of several models of the different models of mm -hmm. ownership of the economy, right? Mm -hmm. So I mean you can imagine a society in which you had state ownership of railways, utilities, etc. Lot of, um, so you'd like to see the state take back control? I would like to see the state, yeah, definitely. Own what about airlines? Monopolies that were, that, as long as they were subject to rigorous democratic accountability, there would be some room for private ownership, mm -hmm. right? The question is not one of constructing a perfect model. The question is one of power. And again, you know, I, I come back to your example of, of what we can do with public listed, publicly listed companies to make them work better in terms mm -hmm. of corporate governance. And that is why we need to think of a completely different kind of model. Because as long as you have economic power concentrated, mm -hmm. you have political power concentrated. It, and those yeah. two things end up being symbiotically in, interrelated. In your post-financialization model, would you have a central bank? Um, yes, I w think so. Would it set interest rates? 
Um, I think it would, and I've got some recommendations in here as to how you would massively increase the democratic accountability of the Bank of England, right? But whether you or not you directly elect the people on the Monetary Policy Committee or whether or not you make them more representative in terms of gender and ethnicity or indeed more representative in terms of a spectrum of different views about how the economy should be managed, you're still basically talking about a group of technocrats fixing the price of something. Are you going to retain that model? I mean, if you want money, you have to have a central bank. No, you don't. You do, unless you want to go back to commodity money, right? No, on the contrary, on the contrary, on the contrary, you can have currency competition today with all kinds of currency. Um, Unless you've got a Bitcoin or a Libra or a... Right. And this is what's fascinating, because then you're just handing over the same amount of power, but rather than to a a public technocrat, to a private oligarch. But if... The only way of doing this is to have an institution that's democratically controlled. But would you therefore outlaw money that wasn't? Are you you suggesting that in future, as non-state currencies become important, you know, if the Facebook dollar came into circulation or the, the Tesco credit... Would you, and, and this is going to happen, it's going to happen, I think, relatively soon, perhaps not those companies, but you will get start getting private currencies, you already do to some extent. Um, digital will allow people to do transactions mm. in, in you know, Swiss francs, for example. Yeah. Um, are you going to ban that? The only way that any of this works is if, collectively, the world is able to take on the power of monopoly capital. If we get to a situation in which... Facebook, Google, Amazon become so powerful that their currencies are trusted more than the US dollar and the British sterling, we're already far beyond that point. And I would argue we're already living in a dystopia. We've got a tiny number of Mark Zuckerbergs and Elon Musks effectively controlling all of our data, controlling our currencies, controlling, you know, determining whether or not they pay tax, completely outside of the orbit of any democratic accountability. And obviously those firms themselves, again, are completely undemocratic. Going back to your post-financialization model, you would retain the essential model of a group of people, they may be more democratically accountable, you might elect them, but they would basically, you would retain the same model of a small group of people fixing the price of credit. And in order to tackle monopoly capitalism, you would inhibit the creation of alternative capital systems, alternative private currencies. The best model for a functioning and fair economy is to have credit that is cheap and relatively difficult to get, depending on who you are. Isn't that a contradiction in terms, if it's cheap? No, because it's a combination of relatively low interest rates and credit controls. So that was the other part of the system that was broken down in the 1970s. So you want to go back to that? Well, we we stopped limiting the creation of credit quantitatively, Mm -hmm. right? And so today you have, you know, a combination of relatively low interest rates and completely free credit. And obviously the credit goes to the people who are most credit worthy, which effectively means that the wealthy are able to get more the credit exactly than anyone else in society. Whereas, you know, often the poorest face ridiculously high interest rates, even though they are technically able to get as much credit as possible. What we need is credit that is, you know, is is a public good. Money is a public good, right? Mm. And because it is a public good, it needs to be democratically controlled and uh, you know there need to be mechanisms to ensure that those who are making these decisions are I, I would argue that in a properly functioning free market economy one person's credit has to be someone else's deferred consumption I would say since 1971 the problem is that all sorts of credit has been conjured out of thin air by banks encouraged by central bankers in the state who wants cheap credit to borrow and so you've got absolutely no correlation, no relationship between savings and um, credit. And that's the root cause of the problem. So if you want to nationalise the creation of credit, you're actually 
you're dealing with a system where credit creation has been nationalised. Credit in effect. itself, I don't think, is the problem. Uh, there is this argument, as you said, one person's credit is another person's deferred consumption. Actually, if you look at the way that, that that would have been true before the system of fiat money that we have yeah. today, right? Definitely. But today, effectively, the reason that we are able to have fiat money is because we have states that are incredibly powerful. And those states are able to say that in 10, 20, 30 years, I will still exist. When you make them and more I will powerful. Still be able to, well, okay, powerful for who and, you know, by who. You know, it's, it's but you'll be making them more powerful. You may be acting in the interests, as you see it, of a broader section of society. But you're talking about conferring on the state even more power. It depends how you view the state, right? Mm -hmm. So if you see, you know, the state as it is now, right, which is an undemocratic, unaccountable, effectively, as you said, kind of cabal of people that works as as Mark said, a committee for managing the affairs of the of the bourgeoisie. There is a way of viewing of, of having a state, which mm -hmm. is an entity, obviously in Bavarian terms, that has a monopoly on the legitimate use of violence, which is a state that is owned and run collectively in the interests of all for the interests of all. Mm -hmm. um, and that for me is really the next phase of human development, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Capitalism emerged. Capitalism has not always been the system according to which humanity has operated. Before been, that, we were poor before then. Exactly. Before that, you, you had feudalism. Before feudalism, you had, you know, various other forms of. of but since, of, since capitalism, we've become a lot richer. Yeah, because human society has progressed, right? You know, we because, have of, because of the free market. Well, you had. Obviously, before capitalism, you had a system of social relations which led to technological and sociological change up to the point at which capitalism became viable. Capitalism became viable, it was institutionalised. It itself oversaw a process of technological and sociological change up into the point that we're at today, whereas it has become less and less effective at achieving the kind of aims mm -hmm. that we wanted to be able to achieve. In the same way, that level of technological and sociological development that we see today is paving the way yeah. for a new form of social organisation, well, just as feudalism paved mm. the way for capitalism. Where would you say capitalism started? Um, well, I mean, like any social system, it emerged in the cracks of the one that was then dying. So you saw, you know, in, um, in various towns across, you know, let's take England as an example, you saw various towns in... in different parts of England working on kind of mercantilist social relations. I suppose in Venice, Venice. there is another Dutch Republic. Yeah, of city-states yeah. which had these kind of mercantilist relations. But really, I would say capitalism as a system proper, that is a, a political and economic system, and those mm -hmm. two things aren't, mm -hmm. aren't separable for me, really emerged in the UK during the Industrial Revolution. You can you think of, of any... any can you think of any society before England and the Industrial Revolution or the Venetian Republic in the Middle Ages, or the Dutch Republic in the early modern period, any society before then, where there was an increase in per capita GDP before the English Industrial Revolution or the Dutch Industrial Revolution or Venice? Where there was ever a per capita increase in GDP yeah. throughout the whole yeah. human history? Yeah. I have no idea. Yeah. I mean, yeah. India, for example, prior to colonization, had 25% of the world's GDP. Um, I don't know what the growth rate was at the time. I remember, the, uh, I remember the Mughals and the Ming, mm. both India and China, had just above subsistence levels mm. of per capita. I mean, Abbasid Iraq in the 10th century Song China for a brief period when they decentralized control. Mm. But the point I'm trying to make is that I would argue that until you get free market capitalism, human the human condition, the default human condition is grinding poverty. Oh, of course. There are half a dozen societies that where the 
is an exceptional period of growth. And that is because they, they're sort of proto-capitalist, if you like. Um, and I would say capitalism's responsible for this huge elevation. Would you agree with that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. But again, you know, the question is, does it stop there? Mm -hmm. I see, you know, most of the course of human history as developing in stages, right? As human societies have become more complex, as we've advanced technologically, intellectually, as mm -hmm. effectively we've had more brains surviving for longer, interacting with one another in different ways, new forms of possibility emerge. Mm -hmm. Financial capitalism is not really imaginable in the early stages of capitalism. Mm -hmm. Really, capitalism wasn't imaginable to anyone living in a feudalist, in a feudal society, where, you know, as a serf, your life was effectively determined by your relationship yeah. um, with, even, with the boss above you. Even when Adam Smith's writing The Wealth of Nations, he had no idea that exactly. we were on the dawn of the Industrial Revolution. Be happening there. Yeah. And even before you had the emergence of feudalism, you had all sorts of different societies, which in some ways represented an improvement on what came before, but also had their own internal problems and contradictions. Mm. In some ways, of course, capitalism has represented an improvement on what came before. Um, and it's definitely, you know, um, as, a, as a political and economic system, so effectively state capitalism, the relationship between mm -hmm. state and capital, mm -hmm. has been responsible for amazing advancements in technology. Mm -hmm. But as those advancements have happened, the possibilities for how we organize ourselves have changed. Mm -hmm. And today, I think we are living in a phase of human history where the possibilities for people to organize themselves are bigger than we've ever seen them before. You've got amazing levels of technology that allow you know, corporations to know what you want before you even got it. But the revolutionary potential of those technologies are concentrated mm -hmm. in the hands of this small elite. You can do collectivism you, without a small vanguard of, of comrades organizing it for yes, you. Yes, you yeah. can. You can do real collectivism mm -hmm. today, I would argue, because you've got these amazing technologies mm -hmm. that allow us to coordinate our activity mm -hmm. in ways mm -hmm. that we've never really been able to before. It, it facilitates not just production, but also... Mm -hmm you know, the workings of democracy. Do you, do you think that previously capitalism has relied on the pricing mechanism to allocate resources? And perhaps with the use of data, it'll be so good that you could actually have an economy where you use data to allocate resources even more efficiently than the pricing mechanism? Well, this is a very interesting argument because the, the Austrian economists would obviously say no. Because, would they? Well, I mean, the, the, Hayek, the Hayek would say the price mechanism is governed by an incredibly complex system that is impossible to um, to kind of recreate. It's a similar argument to what you get in neuroscience about consciousness. But right? I, I think Hayek would probably say that you can't have a small group of people with enough knowledge. But he lived in a world that was analog. Perhaps, you know, some of the artificial intelligence that um, some of these tech um, capitalist monopolies create might actually be so good that you can actually allocate resources using data. I mean, so we're speculating here, but for me, there is a strain in Hayekian thinking that views the, the workings of the price mechanism as effectively unknowable. And this is, I think, an interesting debate also that, that comes into complexity theory and complexity um, economics is... Is it impossible to plan the economy because we don't have enough information? Mm -hmm. Or is it impossible to plan the economy because the economy is effectively unknowable? You have a similar sort of thing with, as I said, the human brain. Is it possible to recreate consciousness if you just rewire the brain yeah. entirely? Or is that something else uh, entirely? And I think Hayek was actually in the unknowable camp. That's almost speculation. I don't know. I actually think, I would say, it has historically been very difficult to plan the economy because we haven't had mm -hmm. that level of information. Mm -hmm. Whereas actually, 
the amount of, of data, the amount of kind of technology we mm. have today means that we will be much better able to coordinate production, mm. allocation and consumption mm. in a way that would be efficient. But it, again, not just focusing on efficiency, which is obviously yeah. important, but also thinking about how we solve the biggest existential crisis that humanity's ever faced, climate change, mm. as well as solving all of these other problems that we need to deal with, like you know productivity, inequality, etc. We've just seen Trump, or rather ludicrously, <laughs> offering to buy Greenland. <laughs> and my so first thought is, does he know something about climate change we don't know? I is, highly, is, highly doubt that. <laughs> but is, 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 does, does he think it's so bad that Greenland might become, you know, a breadbasket in a few years' time. I mean, I honestly don't know. I feel like this is just Trump being like, "Oh, I see the opportunity for a deal. I'm going to go and do it." But what, was so, what was so odd is when the Danish Prime Minister, I thought rather sensibly, said, "Do you know what? It's our sovereign territory." No, and that made me think. I mean, but the, but then why his region still a Danish territory. But, but but then his well, actually they were in the EU, but then left. But um, we won't go there. Um, <laughs> uh, actually, we will as we a country will. go there. Yeah. But that's for another. Story. Um, Changing tax slightly, inequality. I, I'm interested. What What do you think in your book? Do you think inequality's got worse, and what do you think the nature of inequality is in Britain today? So, um, if you look at the trends on income inequality, for example, what you see is that it spikes dramatically in the 1980s. Yeah. Levels off with a few kind of ups and downs until 2007. Um, takes a little dip in 2007, obviously, because the wealthy lose so much. Um, and again, levels off after that. That I'm, has now started to rise. I'm well, going to show. I'll, I'll show a couple of graphs actually yeah. on this piece sure. because I think it's a really interesting story. It definitely does rise in the 80s, but the story certainly since the beginning of the millennium is is a bit more complicated. Yes, it, it is actually complicated. And it's complicated for a number of different reasons. So you have that Gini coefficient mm -hmm. basically kind of flattening now, starting to rise again. Actually. Has it, doesn't it actually show that income inequality has fallen since the? I definitely, it definitely did fall in 2007. I'm not sure for how much longer after, but effectively flattened after that, and it's rising again. Um, I think I think our Gini is something like 0.36, um, and I think it's been around that for, for a while now. What that trend doesn't show, of course, is the fact that the top 1% has increased their share of income substantially. But they're paying a lot um, more tax now, the top 1%. Well, except a lot of them aren't because they're finding ingenious I, ways to shift I, that money around the world. I think I'm right in saying well over half of income tax is now paid by the top 4%. Yes, 5%. so, and partly because of that massive concentration mm. in income, mm. obviously, you know, mm. the, the richer are paying more. That isn't necessarily a, a kind of model that you would want to see. You don't want um, income. Uh, inequality to be so high. Oh, if it's up to me, I would have flat taxes, but, but 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 we're talking about your I mean, book, the, not my yeah, own. Well, yeah. the result, you know, the reason that we've got obviously a, a small number of people paying mm -hmm. a lot of taxes because inequality has risen a lot. And that share that the top 1% have got has increased really very dramatically. And there are reasons would you increase, would, 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 in you, would you increase income tax on those people? On the top yeah. 1%, yeah. absolutely. But surely yes. it was the cut in income tax under George Osborne that's linked to them paying an even higher tax bill. So there is this idea that there's some sort of graph, a Laffer curve for income tax, <laughs> and that if you uh, if you um, reduce a... income taxes above a certain level, then you'll you'll increase um, you'll increase revenues. Of course, the only reason that's true is twofold: it's because the wealthy are able to avoid tax, and because they're able to move their money all around the world. 
I would argue that we need a massive clampdown on tax avoidance and evasion. It is simply ridiculous. Would you introduce capital controls? And I would reintroduce qualitative capital controls, yeah. How would you I do would that? introduce taxes on inflows and outflows, like a financial transactions tax, but for currency, okay. uh, which would increase the effectiveness of income taxes. But also the other thing that I want to talk about when it comes to inequality, which is wealth taxes, because wealth inequality is doubly as high as income when you say wealth, you talk about assets. Yes. So whether that's, you know, um, ownership of financial assets like equities, ownership of land, property, you know, those sorts of things. Um, and that is extremely unequal in the UK, particularly financial wealth. That's got a Gini of something like 0.9, which is astronomical. Um, and the issue with that is that the ownership of wealth isn't just about means. It's not just you're about, you're about mm -hmm. your capacity to kind of, you know, support yourself. It confers power. Yeah. And again, you know, the, those tiny number of people that own all the equities, that own all the yeah. shares and all these companies, mm -hmm. they are controlling all of the priorities. I, I certainly agree. One of the consequences <laughs> of what I would call Osbrown economics, this is the bailouts, quantitative easing, cheap credit for banks, it's, it's pushed up the value of assets. So if you, if you own a house, you've done really well. I looked at some data actually before this interview. In North London, there's a, a, a couple of districts in North London where if you have been an average person going out every day since 1979 earning an average income and also owned an average house there, yeah. you would have earned more money from the bricks and mortar appreciation. Yeah. Crazy. But it's not just homeowners who've done well. If the if you own assets in the form of financial instruments, yeah. you know all these hedge fund managers we think of as financial geniuses. They're not actually. If you borrow at you know two percent and invest and get a four five percent return, uh, you know that's a lot of Porsches you can buy. It's 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 a one way bet at, exactly. at public expense. Another big argument in the book is that um, the political economy that underpins financial growth mm -hmm. is built on. An alliance between the 1% and between the middle earners, basically, between what you might call middle classes. Mm. Um, and in instituting this model, in allowing mm. huge amounts of credit to be created and directed into mm -hmm. the purchase of financial assets, the purchase of real estate, mm -hmm. alongside financial globalization, you obviously see massive asset price inflation mm -hmm. combined with the creation of huge amounts of instability. That enriches the top 1% far more than it enriches anyone else. But it also provides some capital gains yeah. for enough of the population yeah. to make them more I, I, stable. I, I agree with a lot of what you said. I mean, I think it's a really important point when we're talking about inequality. I, I think it's only fair to acknowledge income inequality is not the real problem. It's asset price inequality. That's I the think problem. they're linked, but I would say that wealth inequality was more of a problem than income inequality. Yeah. Um, talking about some of the answers, you democratic socialism. Yes. You advocate, I but do. we we we'll, we'll talk a little bit bit about the example of other countries that have tried this, not not entirely successfully. Um, we also talked about capital controls. Yes. Um, now, um, I mean, I think that's a, certainly a bold move. Does this mean if you went on holiday to France, assuming that you're allowed to do so after Brexit, um, would you have to fill in a form saying, I've got no more than... No, you would not. The way it would work, and I've done a report about this actually, is um, that it would effectively look like a financial transactions tax, but on currency. Right. All the infrastructure is already in place to be able to do this because you have centralised systems that monitor um, uh, transactions that occur between different parties. Mm. And effectively what it would mean that would be above a certain level, say if you want to move more than, I don't know, £10,000 out of the UK, then you would have to pay a progressive tax on the amount you wanted to move out. Um, and that tax would be able to be increased or decreased depending on the point that we were at in the financial cycle. So if you started to get large capital inflows, you might want to put a tax on capital inflows because capital inflows have been a significant reason for the appreciation in London real estate, for example. 
if you saw lots of capital outflows, you might want to put a relatively but high tax on outflows. Foreigners investing in the UK is also one of the reasons why we have such a high living standard. I mean, think of all those factories and offices and businesses that aren't British in origin, but we do rather well because they've invested here. The most Would important thing that? I think to understand about British political economy is the way that we relate to the rest of the world. And for a long time, our wealth has come from the accumulation of lots of wealth here during the Industrial Revolution, which was then invested in other parts of the world. And when you invest in other parts of the world, sure, it creates jobs there, but ultimately you are creating an asset which will yield a return that will come back into Dividends. the UK. Exactly. Whether it's but there, weren't there, there wasn't much left of that investment after 1918, was there? After outward investment, exactly. And so for a long time, we had basically the accumulation of lots of assets all around the world that paid money into the yep. UK. After the 1980s, that model shifted quite substantially. Um, and you started to get, you got the emergence of a big current account deficit. And you started to get um, capital flowing into the UK from people putting their investment Okay. With the, the second, with the second largest that, recipient of inward investment, I think only China gets more inward investment than we do. And so, a significant problem for the UK is that we've got lots of capital flowing in from the rest of the world, but not into things that are productive. Mm -hmm. So, I recently wrote a report on this actually, which fed into a lot of, of the research for this book, which looked at the nature of capital flows into the UK before the financial crisis. Mm -hmm. And what you saw was surplus that had been accumulated in places like Germany, you know, various mm -hmm. other parts of the world being um, ploughed into UK financial and real estate yeah. markets. Effectively, we already had a bubble. We had rising mm -hmm. asset prices. International investors wanted to get, mm -hmm. uh, you know, wanted to um, take advantage of that. And what that did, those capital flows into UK assets didn't really create much in terms of rising productivity, exacerbated financial instability, drove up asset prices, as well as driving up the value of our currency. Mm -hmm. And what does driving up the value of the currency do? It means that exporters, manufacturers, particularly based outside of London in the regions, face a much higher exchange rate, which makes their exports less competitive. Okay. You get this self-reinforcing cycle of capital inflows, driving up mm -hmm. asset prices, mm -hmm. people buy more imports, um, and exporters mm -hmm. are unable to compete on international yeah. markets. Massive current account deficit, yeah. and really like quite substantial increases in instability. Yeah. If, if you want to tackle this with a system of capital controls, presumably that precludes the possibility of us ever joining the euro, is that right? Well, yes, absolutely. And I think it would be a terrible idea for us to join the euro either way. Um, Do you think we should remain in the EU? I, I've been outspoken on the fact that I don't think we should remain in the EU. No, partly right. because of this issue of... You're very welcome on this show. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, I thought that's why you invited me. <laughs> I, I'd rather be governed by, by, by a, a, a socialist who was elected by um, Brits that we could get rid of than by an unelected uh, Eurobanker. Well, exactly. I think that's uh, probably the, the main... Um, link between critique of the euro from the left and from the right. Yeah, I mean, issue. next to Yanis Varoufakis' yes. book. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you know, I don't agree with his politics, but there's a lot of sense in what he says. Yeah. Um, I mean, whether or not you think from the right, we've got this system of crony capitalism that's managed by Europe, or mm. from the left, you think that, you know, Europe works in the interests of a tiny number of corporations rather than mm. being accountable to people, yeah. you've got the same critique, which is yeah. effectively insufficient accountability. I, I remember listening to Tony Benn when I yes. was uh, at school, yes. and I, I, he had profound impact on me when I heard him talking about this, mm. and he was very much a man of the left, mm. but I remember thinking, do you know, I think he's onto something. Yeah, this. absolutely. I think, you know, Partly, that has been why there has been such a backlash against uh, against Europe, is that it just seems so remote and unaccountable. Yeah. I think the other thing is that, you know, there was this whole narrative in the aftermath of the vote to leave the European Union that a whole swathe of people had voted against their interest and didn't know what they were doing. 
If you look yeah. at yeah, if you look at the emergence of that model, right, of those capital inflows coming to the UK, mm. boosting asset prices, leading to deindustrialization, financial globalization has been disastrous for the UK and particularly for the parts of the UK that voted to leave the European Union. They were onto something. Sure, they might not have been able to say, yes, you know, the, the problem we're facing yeah. is Dutch disease and capital inflows, but they will have known that their areas, their communities, their workplaces have been impoverished yeah. and the, as integration yeah. has increased. And, and the financial system we have definitely means that you get this, you know, it subsidizes the creation of tower blocks and, and bankers' bonuses in London, and you get this two tier economy. You get the London economy. Yeah. Yeah. And the trickle down into the southeast, yeah. and then you get everywhere else. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, it's like um, this is what you're starting to see as the world become more financially integrated. You have a couple of massive urban centres that mm. exist at this level of kind of international, um, really like a global elite that moves their money, mm -hmm. that moves their their assets between these different centres, whether it's London, Dubai, New York, etc. Mm. And these places exist in this ethereal world of the global economy, have more in common with one another often than they do with you know, the rest of their, their countries as, as a whole. Um, and it's created huge amounts of inequality, obviously, but it's also created political issues and resentments. Um, Dubai is a fascinating example of this because the reason the way oh, is that it gets quite around recently? it, yeah, exactly. The way it gets around this problem is by saying only ten percent of people can be citizens. The rest of newer slave labour that builds the yeah. tower blocks, the international. Interestingly, in. Dubai has also got a financial business district in it under which the laws of England and Wales apply. Right, and it's mm. contracted out its entire process of adjudication to the laws. Of England. It imports judges from Hong Kong, Singapore, wow. and the UK, and you you see where it starts. You've mm. got you've got. Um, ordinary bit of Dubai and then Tablock and it's where the laws of England and Wales yes. apply. But you know, it's got an economy where it, it literally it, it imports um, very, very cheap labour, yeah. treats them appallingly yeah. under many conditions. Mm. And um, yeah, it's um it's um it's yeah. I'm not and that's the model that you ultimately get when you have this level of integration mm -hmm. because it creates economists are terrible at thinking about history and path dependency. Which is that when you get um, a kind of agglomeration of, of capital, of skills, of resources in one area, that area attracts investment. Mm. It grows, it attracts more investment, and suddenly you get rising regional inequality, etc. It sounds suspiciously like neoclassical endogenous growth theory, which I think was something that Ed Balls once became famous for talking about. <laughs> Not uh, quite. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, God, yeah, don't be started on endogenous growth theory. Um, no, I, you know, there's, there's a, a role for, for history and for path yeah. dependency in economics, yeah. right? And whether you're looking at the concentration of power in international monopolies, yeah. in uh, big cities, in big banks, yeah. it's just not something that most economists I, look at. I, I, I read a book by um, Jesus Huerta de Soto, who's an mm -hmm. economics professor at Madrid University, and it's extraordinary because he talks a little bit about the history. And you think that this process of what you call financialization is affecting the UK and has affected the UK economy. But of course, he talks about what happened in the Netherlands, the, yes. the home of the world's first industrial revolution, yeah. the Bank of Amsterdam. You get hyper financialization. Look what happens there. It ends in disaster. Yeah. You could almost say you've got the similar thing in, 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 in Venice. I mean, I would even go so far as to say, and I, I, I say this in a, a, a book I, I published quite recently, in, in the Republic of Rome, you, towards the late Republic, have a symbiotic relationship between the publicani, which are a bit like banks, the banks of their day, in that they're, they're tax farmers. The Senate gives them permission to tax the provinces in return for paying ready cash now. So like with banks today in the bond market, the state gets money to spend today. The financial right. institution yeah. gets a slice of future tax revenue. And you get this, this, this sh huge sort of shift 
in invested interest, this symbiotic relationship. Mm. And, you know, it means by the end of the late Roman Republic, the Italian peninsula is not making anything. Mm. It's, a, it's an economic husk. This is fascinating. This is actually an argument by um, a kind of Marxist historian called Arrighi, who says that financialization is the late stage of capitalist development in empires all around yep. the world. And he cites Venice, the Netherlands, the UK, and now America. He's, he's probably been reading Carswell's book. <laughs> Progress sure. versus <laughs> but, but what's really extraordinary is when the republics of Venice and the republics of the Dutch and the republics of the Romans, when those three republics end up with this massive influx of wealth, which means that the body politic of the republic gets mm. sort of, you know, it, the constitution gets subverted yeah. because of this massive inflow of wealth and this creation of this hyper-rich elite. Um, it's by extorting provinces. The Dutch have mm. provinces in the Far East, the Venetians have them in the Eastern Mediterranean, the Romans obviously have provinces around the Mediterranean. I would say the wealth today is being sucked in, not from any provinces, but from posterity. It's the bond market that allows this hyper-financialization, this transfer of wealth from an unborn generation to today's elite. And it's this that explains the creation of... of I would say it's um, being sucked in from the global south. The way that each of these empires ends up trying to solve this problem of, of hyper-financialization is through imperialism. You get the agglomeration of this amount of wealth in, in the center. It needs an outlet. But where is this wealth coming from? Well, okay, so... There's just not the wealth in Africa to exploit. It isn't that. Initially, you get the agglomeration of this wealth in the in the, the place that is the most advanced productive. Let's you know take the example of the UK, right? Um, after the Industrial Revolution, you have, a, a let's say, a, a lot of, of savings, a lot of wealth that needs to be invested. Where does it get invested? In other parts of the world. You have the same thing in the Netherlands. You have the same thing in Venice. When you invest that wealth in other parts of the world, you are then guaranteeing yourself a long-term return from those parts of the world. But it's really that fascinating. That allows you to kind of continue to like, manifest that imperial you, you're, you're, you're absolutely right in the chronology. You, you've got the economic takeoff of the Dutch, of the English, with their industrial revolutions, mm. and then the acquisition of empire. So exactly. often those on the left assume that it's the acquisition of empire that allows the creation the of wealth. The acquisition of it's empire the is, of... A, is a, a mechanism for channeling domestic savings, domestic wealth, into capital but accumulation. Econo economic takeoff happens pre-imperialism. Yes. But then imperialism but then, then comes along and corrupts the body politic that allows the free market. Imperialism allows the model to continue. Because otherwise, you have this problem of you have too much money stuck at the top. Where is this wealth going to go? Who is going to buy the goods that are being produced? But where does it go? I mean, imperialism is a solution to that because that wealth is invested abroad. But however, however much wealth some Dutch merchants got from the spice trade with the Far East, however much wealth some Lancashire cotton millers got from selling cotton to India, it was nothing as the wealth that was being created in the Dutch Republic and in the UK as and a the, consequence of specialization and exchange. And continued to be created in those countries, yeah. right? That wealth continued to be accumulated and it continued but the idea, to be. But the idea, this is Marx's idea that capitalism needs a spatial fix. You get too much money that is stuck at the very top, you know, accumulated by the people who own the capital, mm -hmm. and they need to find an outlet for it. So it spreads its tentacles all over the world, finds up new avenues, whether it's going into China or resource extraction in Africa, which allows people to continue to make as much money from their money as they're used to making in their domestic environment. Now that then itself creates a whole load of problems, which mm -hmm. as you were saying, like uh, you get underdevelopment in other parts of, um, of the, the core of that region. It also creates potentially unstable do you think, political do you think, dynamics. Do you think British imperialism underdeveloped Africa? Oh, absolutely. But, um, but, but okay, the but, main but, but, reason but for this... British imperialism extended 
after in Africa after 1880. Where where was where was the capital investment after 1880 in Africa? Where is the, the capital? Where, where, where was where were the factories and the mines? There were well, very no, few. No, I mean it, it mainly went into resource extraction, right? If you look at the investment in Africa, um, or, well, I mean investment in Africa in terms of extraction prior, uh, you know, in, in the early days. But manufacturing output, manufacturing output, including wealth from mining, was 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 yeah, a so minuscule amount of GDP in in, in compared to the. UK, to, UK GDP. Oh, of course. Yeah, I mean, you're starting from effectively an incredibly low base, right? If you imagine capitalist development as taking place through a stage of, you know, you have uh, effectively kind of subsistence forms of agriculture, you then um, have a state that is able to create a landless peasant class that goes to work in the factories, then manufacturing takes place, then that creates different mm -hmm. forms of sociology. Mm -hmm. That process is disrupted in most parts of the world because rather than um, those relationships changing and coming, you know, rather than getting kind of um, at the emergence of domestic capitalist class and the emergence of secondary industry and manufacturing, etc., you get the wealth that is created from extraction and mm -hmm. from subsistence farming mm -hmm. coming out of those places, not going to domestic capitalists, going to capitalists in the core, mm -hmm. um, and um, the returns from that model. How do, you, how do you square that with the fact that per capita GDP in countries like Kenya and Uganda and Tanzania? increased in the first part of the 19th century then you get to independence and they decrease very dramatically in countries like Uganda and it's only really quite recently long after um, imperialism and colonialism and post-colonialism is a distant memory that you start to get this growth. So colonialism in terms of um, the investment that it creates obviously does expand GDP right but it does so in a way that prevents the natural development of that economic system in a way that would allow it to become self-sustaining. We've been waiting for almost a century for this alleged catch-up to take place, right? We've been told for a very, very long time that if the rest of the world just allows international investment, just allows British and American effectively capitalists to come in, buy up large swathes of their economy, and build factories, etc., then those economies... But isn't develop. this happening? That is not what has happened. Isn't, isn't the, the greater... Places, the parts of the world that have developed um, over the last kind of 20, 30, 40 years are those that have had domestic and often state ownership of large part of the commanding heights of their economy. Take China, China the China, South Asian Tigers, China, etc. China, the standout example. Exactly. China kicks out the external parasites yeah. in 1948. In 1948, the average Chinese was as poor as a Chinese person would have been 2,000 years earlier. Far from taking off, the next 20 or 30 years see China make a series of blunders with state-owned control of the economy, the Great Leap Forward, which ends up with millions of people starving. It's only after 1978 mm. when, for example, state-owned enterprises are no longer run on the workers' collectivist model that you talk about, when you start to get proper free market capitalism. That's when you get the takeoff. China, off. there is no way of describing China since 1970s as proper free market capitalism. It's a but move it towards still, it. It's an abandonment of socialism. Capital controls, exchange controls, mass state ownership of not just corporations, but finance. But, a but, but, it, system, a but, system but in 78, but pre-78, state-owned enterprises are run from the centre. Post-78, state-owned enterprises are run at a provincial level. And it's sure. possible for private capital, private ownership of those firms. You you get this system of, of free market capital. There's no other way to describe it. That, okay, I, can, I, I couldn't disagree more that this is a free market capitalist system. I agree that you get decentralization, so the municipalities become much, much more important in the, um, in the, in the working of this model. Um, but you still have 
mass state ownership, whether it's state ownership that's affected the level of the, the cameras, the cameras, the, the cameras that are recording it, that one and that one are, uh, I think, a Japanese-owned yeah. firm that manufactured it in China. That one, and I forget the name, I'll flash it up on the screen, it's made by a company that's owned by China. Are you saying that they don't really own it? It's a state-run company that owns that company. It's a state-run so company. Is it a private company? That it's owns a private that? company. Yeah, of course. I mean, because, you know, you're right to say that there has been an expansion in private ownership, and particularly foreign ownership in, in China. But it's all controlled and mediated by the system of state allocation of credit, which is incredibly important. So all the banks are really state-owned. Of state ownership of the largest and most systemically important uh, organizations and of capital controls because still you have this model where China is effectively controlling the amount of capital that comes into mm. and out of the Chinese state. It has not allowed the larger, most important parts of its economy to be bought up by foreign investors. And that's the reason that it's been able G to develop. Given the vast amount of credit and debt, I would say artificial credit and artificial debt, particularly at the municipal level in China, yeah. don't you think that actually their financialization problem insofar as the government is even worse than us. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, the um, the kind of, the transition towards, I suppose, a slightly more um, mixed economy in which, yes, you still have basically state ownership mm -hmm. of, of the most important things combined with uh, some private ownership and, and, and greater integration into the global economy has created a set of very serious problems. The first problem was obviously China was hit very substantially by the financial crisis. What did the Chinese do in the aftermath of the financial crisis? They spent 20% of their GDP on a stimulus program designed to mm -hmm. boost the mm -hmm. economy again. And it worked incredibly well for a very, very long time. Really, for the 10 years after the financial crisis, it was Chinese state spending and uh, the spending of state-owned enterprises and municipalities that was keeping the global economy mm -hmm. afloat. Mm -hmm. The issue that we've got to today is that um, the, the system of private credit creation alongside a boom in particular mm. asset markets, maybe mm. property markets in some parts of, the, of China, has gone too far. And part of that is, of course, because the government doesn't want to stop that to allow growth rates to go below mm. what they see as the politically acceptable mm. level of around okay. 5 6%. Okay. Okay. You've been incredibly generous with your time. And I want to conclude by asking you for your thoughts about, about Jeremy Corbyn yes. and the British political situation. Now, I take it you're not a Boris Johnson fan. <laughs> Absolutely not. And you are a Jeremy Corbyn fan. I am. Tell me, what would you like to see? I'm not going to rebut any of this because yes. you know it's it's people aren't interested in what I think. They want they want to know what you think. If Jeremy Corbyn is party leader, gets in, there's an election soon, and he becomes prime minister, what would you like him to do straight away? What would be your idea of you know correcting Ooh. all these problems? Amazing. You've asked me to, to tell you about my ideas from the book. So, firstly, we need. Um, my argument is effectively, as I said, that a lot of what happens in the economy is not just determined by um, you know, abstract economics, it's determined by power relations. Mm. And so the centre of my argument is that a socialist government has to take on the banks the way that Thatcher took on the unions. You need to rebalance power relations if you want to change the way things work. So I think we need a massive increase and change in the way that the private banking system is regulated. As I said, we need uh, controls on the amount of credit that's able to be created. Uh, we need to think about limiting the amount of capital that goes into certain sections of the economy, real estate, for example, and replace that private banking system with a public banking system that is democratically run, accountable, and directs credit into socially useful activities. That helps to... Who would decide what was socially useful? The democratic process. Okay. We collectively come together and engage, uh, whether that's, you know... So there's one model, for example, that sees public banks as having a board that is comprised of a majority of directly elected representatives, along with, say, um, 
representatives from uh, from government, from unions, from business, and uh, communities. Maybe citizens' assembly. Well, I mean, yeah. quite you know that that sort of model. Um, and over the long term, you would use that to finance a green new deal, which would effectively see our economy go to zero carbon, hopefully by twenty thirty, and also create a kind of development bank that would be able to finance those transitions in the rest of the world as well, alongside. The big idea in my book, which I argue for, which I'm not sure how you're going to feel about, the creation of a people's asset manager. So at the moment, big asset managers agglomerate all our savings and use it to buy up big chunks of the economy. BlackRock owns all these you know, businesses. and they George Osborne's employee. Exactly. Employer. So rather than having us send our pensions to BlackRock and BlackRock use them for its own ends, extracting fees in the process, why don't we have a democratically owned and run People's asset would our pensions have to go to it? Our pensions would not have to go to it. There would be incentives and there would be um, kind of, yeah, tax incentives um, and also, I suppose, democratic incentives because you'd have you'd be able to engage in this asset manager in a way that you can't engage in BlackRock. So it would um, be entirely voluntary. You, yes, you could, yeah, you yeah, could yeah. hand it to the pensions commissar, but you yes. don't have to. Uh, so I think that there should be a fund in there to manage pensions and there should be a fund in there okay. to manage the collective assets that we already have. Um, as a as a state, whether that's you know the crown estate, um, uh, you, you know parts of uh, and would this disperse power? Yes, I would like because it would it would buy up strategically um, set, uh, assets in the economy um, that we would consider based on you know the democratic objectives laid out in the Green New Deal to be um, public goods, and so you would steadily increase collective democratic ownership over various different parts of the economy, as well as increasing investment in those areas that need it most. Quick question. You said up till now socialism hasn't worked because it always concentrates power. Yeah. And you said that this is democratic socialism. But I, I still fail to see how creating these new institutions and giving them all this power, how that's going to be any different to what's already been tried. Because they're institutions that are run by the people. So was the, so the, the, the government of the German Democratic Republic. So was the government of Venezuela. Well, again, you know, all of these places, they end up, because you have economic power concentrated in this, you know, with this tiny elite, and with four or five people often, that government ends up being accountable to those people rather than to people that elect it, right? You know, we need mechanisms to strengthen democratic Isn't the market a form of, of democracy? Isn't the market a great form of democracy? If anyone, could, anyone is, can invest their pension pot wherever the they like. The market is a form of democracy that works very well for all the people that already have the wealth, right? So it, it is a form of democracy that works on the principle of one dollar, one vote, rather than one person, one vote. That is not the kind of democracy that I would like to see. And it's not, I would argue, the kind of democracy that will allow us to solve some of the world's biggest problems. There's more to eat today in London than there is in Venezuela. Of course, right? And, you know, Venezuela is suffering from a whole host of various interrelated issues to do with the falling price of oil, sanctions, along with a kind of crony state socialist regime that is not working. For the, the wrong kind of people. socialism. Well, I mean, there's no democracy. It's absolutely mm. not a democratic socialist model, is, mm. it, is it? Um, well, didn't they elect and use referenda? And yeah, I mean, you know, there are democratic mechanisms, but there are democratic mechanisms in almost every country all over the world, right? It's a question of mm -hmm. how strong they are mm -hmm. and uh, whether or not they influence what the powerful are actually end up being able to do. So you've got capital controls, you've got the people's asset, asset manager. manager. Having worked in asset management, I think it's an intriguing idea. I'm not sure you would get that many people voluntarily putting their pensions in, Perhaps but see what those tax breaks are like. Um, capitalists can be very pragmatic when it comes to tax breaks. <laughs> what else would you do? Um, Export well, controls, import controls? Um, I think the capital controls get to that problem because okay. obviously, you know, the current account deficit is a mirror of the financial account. So. Would you nationalise land if people own too much of it? Um, my proposals for housing are 
a couple, there I have a couple of different proposals. So firstly, you're obviously limiting credit creation for particularly for kind of like let landlords, people who are already at mm -hmm. homes, etc. Mm -hmm. uh, mass social housebuilding program as part of the Green New Deal. Mm -hmm. So you'd be retrofitting existing houses, you'd be building homes to a very high environmental standard and particularly focused in regions of the country that have been underdeveloped. And also a program of remunicipalization. So if, for example, you get, you know, after Brexit, for example, we might see a slight decline in house prices. You might then see people wanting to sell their houses. Um, historically, the government has kind of stepped away and, and, and allowed that process to happen. But we know that we are missing a huge amount of social housing uh, in this economy, and that land. So you would buy up private houses. Allow the, the state and local authorities. I can, to I can see, I can see houses. lots of crony capitalists who are going to love your democratic socialist model. If you're going to offer to buy houses, should the house price market go down? In other words, if the state is going to underwrite house prices, don't you see what's going to happen? Well, I mean, yeah, you would put a limit under the ability of house prices to fall below a certain level, right? You it would becomes a one-way bet. You would have a well. You would have the state offer, obviously, to step in and buy that house at a level below the market value for a whole host of reasons, because you wouldn't have to go through a long, complicated process, because it would be um, much more secure. But over the long term, that asset is then owned by the state, and it generates revenues for the state in the form of social rents. That's so, and, and house prices ultimately tend to increase. So you would underwrite house prices and say that the state would step in and buy house houses if the value of the house fell? The idea would be to effectively keep house prices the same. Right, so the combination of the controls on credit and um, the building social housing and remunicipalisation mm -hmm. would aim to keep house prices level, yeah. allow them to be eroded by inflation over the long term, as well as providing decommodified housing for those who can't currently afford it, yeah. so that over the long term you get them falling relative to income. Yeah. Grace, it's been absolutely fascinating having you here. Um, Thank you so I, much I, I, me. I've agreed with some of what you said. I've not agreed with some of what you said, Vice but versa. my view, my views are immaterial. <laughs> Um, thank you very much for coming on. And when is the book out? It's on the 10th of September. Fantastic. I'm going to put a little strip along the bottom so okay. people can click on. And I hope um, even if the viewers don't naturally agree with um, everything you said, I, I, I think it would be well worth people reading because I think it raises points that free marketeers should, should at least understand and address, even if they don't agree with them. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks.